Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Jill is still off on one of her adventures, but we see sightings of her on social media, and we can't wait to have her back. <laughs> Today, we'll be discussing the latest court activities in connection with DOJ's search at Mar-a-Lago, former Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman's new book and our questions about it, and Steve Bannon, who turned himself in yesterday after he was indicted on money laundering and conspiracy charges by the Manhattan District Attorney. What a week for legal news, y'all. As always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show, one of our favorite parts. But before we get to this week's legal news, I have to ask y'all, I've been watching 24-hour coverage um, about the Queen. You know, I'm always very ambivalent about the British monarchy. There's something, um, I think it's the history that's compelling to me, but the history is also in some ways very repulsive to me, right? I mean, there's a big history of colonialism that goes along with the monarchy. But whatever you think of all that, Elizabeth was quite a figure, lived through, uh, you know, such an era of change. It's so strange to think that she was the first monarch to send an email, um, but that she also lived through World War II when she was a mechanic. How did y'all react to the news of her death? Kim, what did you think? Yeah, I had the same kind of uh, thought as you, Joyce. On the one hand, I am anti-monarchy anywhere on the globe. I'm certainly anti-colonialism monarchy. But at the same time, I was glued to my TV on Thursday when news broke that, you know, that she wasn't doing well. Um, And I was trying to, to reconcile that. And I thought, you know, at the same time that we recognizing that the monarchy is something that I didn't support. The queen herself, and by extension, her family, has been captivating for my entire lifetime. Like, I remember being a kid and just seeing Princess Diana in that absolutely humongous dress, you know, going down the aisle and getting married and, and, you know, just waking up in the middle of the night when I was in law school to watch her funeral um, and just being captivated by all the twists and turns. Yes, I binge The Crown like lots of other people. <laughs> and it's just the story of the entire family, but particularly this queen who knew Churchill, you know, who saw so much of history and played a part in so much of it. You can't help but be just sort of intrigued by that. For everything about the, the fact that she used her handbag to signal to her staff when she wanted to leave a party or something. Like, that's a great trick, right? I want to learn how to do that. Um and just the way that she, I think she was, one thing about the queen, I will say, is that she was probably better than anybody else in the history of the world at understanding public perception and using her charm for 70 years to keep her popularity. Like, she never took a position on anything. She was very coy when she needed to be. She was charming when she needed to be, funny when she needed to be. And that's why almost uniformly everybody is down to the Dalai Lama, is expressing their genuine sorrow at her passing. And that's quite, whatever else you think about her or the monarchy, that's that's really remarkable. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Kim. That bit with the marmalade sandwich and Paddington bear, if that doesn't suck you in, what will? (laughs) 
Barb, what was your reaction? Yeah, well, you know, like every day I was getting those like BBC news alerts. Did you see those? That like, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. you know, first it was uh, Charles and, and and Camilla are going to be there by her side. You know, the doctor has set, has put her on bed rest. Like, uh oh, that sounds kind of bad. Then, um, you know, what, what do they call the the prince and princess of Kensington? What do they call William and Kate? What are they? Cambridge. Well, they were Cambridge, 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 whatever they are. Yeah. You know, uh oh. Yes. And then when I saw the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are gone, like, uh oh, this yeah. is. That's curtains. It's bad. Yeah. In fact, my son, I said, oh man, it sounds like she probably doesn't have much time. And my son said, you know what? I bet she's actually already dead. And they just need to get the family together first before they say so. Oh, wow. What a gut punch. Um, 70 years on the throne, you know, um, pretty good run. I had a chance to visit England earlier this year and I was really struck by the same themes you guys are talking about. On the one hand, admiration for this uh, person who's been a leader and I think a unifier within her own country and revulsion at the imperialism and the colonialism. And, you know, we went to the British Museum where they have stuff they just stole from all over the world. <laughs> you don't think you want to give that stuff back to the Parthenon? and. Uh, <laughs> Um, and so that part, you know, really feels bad. And it, it wouldn't surprise me to see the monarchy end or change as a result of her death. But I, I did admire uh, Queen Elizabeth. I think that, uh, as Joyce said, she did a, a good job of, um, I don't know, being in the face and a source of pride for people in England. They loved her. They adore her. The queen, you know, they'd come out and show up at all of those events to show their adulation outside the balcony at Buckingham Palace. And, you know, she did have a sense of humor. You, you mentioned the Paddington Bear one where she's eating the <laughs> the Marmite sandwich or whatever. The one I loved was uh, the 2012 Olympics. Remember that one where she went up in the helicopter with James Bond? Uh, it, it was the opening great. ceremonies. Yeah, yeah we, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I thought that was great. I mean, she can <laughs> laugh at herself. She's got a good sense of humor. And I will also say um, she gave a really excellent speech in a video about um, rallying to defeat COVID. You remember that one? Yeah. You know, we've it got was a great uh, speech. we've got a president in our country calling it a hoax and denying its existence, and she there talking about how we will get through this together with love and support. And I thought that was the kind of unifying speech you wanted to hear. So we will miss her um, and Charles the Third. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how his reign goes. You Hard see to say King Charles, you, right? Yeah, you just uh, see the face that Kim just made. It the phrase <laughs> King Charles. I yeah, have thoughts yeah, about him. But Kim, that, what did you think about the day. speech? About the king. Did you listen speech? to his speech? His first I, speech. I to did. The Commonwealth. I rolled my eyes a lot. I'll leave it at that. I bet you did. <laughs> so a lot has gone down in the case of the classified document seized at Mar-a-Lago since we last potted. As you all know, former President Trump sought and was granted an order by a federal judge to appoint a special master to sift through the thousands of seized documents to flag any that may be covered by executive or attorney-client privilege or that are personal in nature. And Thursday, the DOJ said, not so fast. It asked the judge who issued that order to reconsider or else said that it would appeal. So, Barb, I spent most of the last week on uh, my TV appearances on MSNBC stating how I thought that the DOJ should not appeal this, both because time is of the essence and also I was really afraid and still am afraid that this appeal 
if they move forward, could result in some bad loss. I'm going to ask you, were you surprised by Merrick Garland's decision to move forward with at least a promise of appeal if this judge does not modify this order? Um, And why do you think Merrick Garland wants to appeal? Basically, Barb, do you agree with Merrick Garland or me? Well, I agreed with you until I saw what Merrick Garland did, which I think is a very shrewd move. In fact, um, the day DOJ filed their notice of appeal, I had an op-ed in MSNBC Daily saying um, the decision is bad. Appeal would be worse. Don't do it uh, because of the fear of making bad law. And, you know, the judges, the majority of the judges on the 11th Circuit are Trump appointees. Um, Now you've got a decision that is not binding on anybody. Uh, if it goes to the 11th Circuit, now it is binding and you go to the Supreme Court and it's binding on everybody. So I think there was, there's some risk of an appeal. But I thought this was brilliant because I think so often the right answer is a third way. Law students out there, people of all uh, lines of work who make decisions, so often decisions come to us as a binary choice. You must do X or Y. And the right question to ask always is, is there a third way we're not thinking about here? Can we brainstorm those third ways? And that's what they came up with here, which is really brilliant. It is, can we have a carve out for the classified documents? Because that's what we really care about. That's what this case is all about. And if you want to have a special master, look at all this other stuff as newspaper clippings and other government records, fine, you know, fine, fine, fine. We'll withdraw our notice of appeal. But otherwise, this is an urgent problem. We need to uh, assess the damage that has been done by having this material out there in the world for all this time. And so we can't do that unless we have both the intelligence community and the criminal investigators at the FBI uh, explore who had this, who had access to this. And so I thought they made a very strong case respectfully, and I I, I applaud them for finding a third way. And so, and and I appreciate that, uh, Barb. I think that is probably right. But Joyce, the one thing that I just couldn't get over in this judge's order uh, granting this special master was the part about executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, fine, you know, if you want to review that. But the DOJ already did um, a review of attorney-client privilege and a couple pieces slipped through and I get how maybe you want someone to do that. But if the special master was just looking at that, that would probably take a day. Like that would be really quick. But executive privilege, I mean, this isn't the the January 6th committee, which is a different branch. This is the executive branch. It's the DOJ. And Trump is no longer in office. And the privilege has already been waived by President Biden. So could the 11th Circuit or the Supreme Court come to a different conclusion than me that this executive privilege claim is just a lot of hooey? I think that DOJ agrees with you, Kim. And the way that their agreement that executive privilege is just not in play here manifests is in this request that they've just made to the district judge for a stay of part of her order. DOJ is in the process of appealing to Atlanta, but they've asked the judge to stay her order insofar as it relates to classified documents. And they've said, judge, we need to go ahead and have the ability to use these materials not only for the intelligence community risk analysis, but also for the criminal case. And we also don't want to submit these to the special master. And in order to get that stay, they have to prove a number of um, well-established issues. And one is that they have a strong chance of success on appeal. And DOJ's comments, their argument about executive privilege is pretty compelling in this regard. So to answer your question, you know, I would say it would be an awfully 
Um, I'm going to try to be politic here because this is the circuit I live in and practice in. <laughs> it would be awfully um, discouraging and downright embarrassing if the 11th Circuit affirmed her order in this regard. You know, there's this baseline, and, and you've walked through the arguments. For one thing, this is the executive branch looking at executive branch documents. There's no executive privilege. A- and we haven't, you know, on TV, you don't have really time to talk about this, but let me just take a second here and explain this. If there is an inter-executive branch privilege it would mean that the former president could talk, stop the current president from looking at documents that he needs to govern, right? I mean, it would yep. be Trump saying Joe Biden can't look at anything about, you know, a certain deal that we did. And yep. then the current president is supposed to fly blind. That alone is enough to kick this argument out, right? But Trump has no possessory interest in these documents because they are classified materials. And so even if he were somehow weirdly to prevail, the documents don't go back to him. That's, you know, that's not what's ever going to happen in this case. Um, And I think the 11th Circuit will read DOJ's very compelling argument and find that um, this is not about executive privilege. So, Barb, Trump's team from the beginning have been saying, you know, this is politically motivated. This is an overwrought investigation over the Presidential Records Act, which we've discussed before, which comes with pretty low penalties, uh, even though it's still uh, a criminal. But could Trump and others face more serious charges, especially given this week's revelations that some of the documents seized contain really highly sensitive information about a foreign country's nuclear capabilities? Yeah, I think, you know, two things. One is for Donald Trump, the best defense is always a good offense. I'm sure that if the Justice Department had done this the way they wanted to, this would all have been quiet and we wouldn't know anything about it unless and until criminal charges were filed. So it would have been possible to resolve this quietly. But because Mm. he is the one who alerted the public that, you know, the FBI had raided, in his words, Mar-a-Lago using a search warrant, uh, an unannounced search well, yes. you can't announce a search or you kind of lose that element of surprise. And by the way, they did announce. They called Secret Service a few hours before and said, we're coming with a warrant. You, there won't be any trouble, right? And they said, of course not. We'll honor a search warrant. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's all been about this is harassment. This is overkill. Uh, and and many, many people have echoed that. Um, or the other is, this is not a big deal. They should have given me more time. This is all, you know, a political witch hunt. Even his, uh, one of his lawyers has appeared on Fox News, Jim Trusty, who used to be a DOJ lawyer. I thought he was a fine lawyer when he was at DOJ, but he has said, um, this is the equivalent of an overdue library book. Um, I'm disgusted with that statement. It can, could not be more false. Um, these are the most sensitive documents that exist in government. Um, if this reporting is true, and I have no reason to believe it's not, we, one of the documents contains information about a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities. That is what's called special access programs. Only a handful of people get access to that. The president, you know, a couple people in the cabinet, a couple people in the military, like that's it. And he's got it lying around at Mar-a-Lago. And so the, the charges that he could be facing aren't just violations of the Presidential Records Act, which is no big deal, but he could face violations of the statutes that are cited in the search warrant for which 
the magistrate judge found probable cause to believe there was a violation. One of those is the Espionage Act. And all this nonsense about I declassified becomes completely irrelevant for the Espionage Act because the Espionage Act was written before the classification system existed and instead talks about the content of the documents. If it includes national defense information, then it can be a violation of the Espionage Act if someone willfully retains those things. And boy, it sure looks like that's exactly what Donald Trump has done here. In addition, and we've seen more hints about this in DOJ's subsequent findings, but there was uh, one of the statutes on which this was all based was um, violation of the obstruction of justice statute, the one involving concealing of documents. And it seems that that theory is focusing in on this representation that Trump's lawyers made in June, that they had conducted a diligent search of Mar-a-Lago and found only a handful of documents that they put in an envelope and said, in response to a subpoena for all the documents, here you go. That's it. That's all. And then two months later, lo and behold, there's 27 more boxes. So somebody was obstructing the truth there. And in one of these recent filings, DOJ has said, they said they did a diligent search and found nothing. In a couple of hours, we found 27 boxes worth. So who's being diligent here? So I I think those are very serious charges. That's a 20-year felony. Um, And I think, you know, you have to be able to uh, attribute the knowledge to the defendant. And so I think there's a possibility that Trump tries to throw his lawyers under the bus. Hey, who knows what I had? I, they packed it up. They brought it home. I didn't know. But I think that defense is going to have a hard time in light of the ongoing negotiations they had for 18 months about returning these documents. And Trump participated in that. And when the chief of the counter espionage section came down in June, uh, you know, Trump said, let us know anything you need. You bet you can have it all. And it turns out there are 27 boxes that uh, they did not turn over. So I think he's in some very serious jeopardy here. Um, And I'm going to go on a limb and say, I think charges are more likely than not to be filed. Yeah, I think that that's, I agree with that assessment, Barb. We're three for zero on that. I agree too. (laughs) (laughs) And listen, when it comes to this special master who might be appointed pending uh, the judge's response to the DOJ, Joyce, who might the special master be? Talk about how difficult it's going to be to find someone who meets all the requirements of this special master. You know, this is, sorry, go ahead. Now, and what what will this special master do? You know, I just, apparently I'm too eager to share this information (laughs) that I have learned from Twitter, which is that people are actually submitting their names. There's this sort of crowdsourcing effort to become the special master. Oh, yeah. And if you you go on to Pacer, and there are all of these items being docketed, and it's people who are saying, choose me, choose me, I want to be the special (laughs) master. Um. In reality, I think it's a little bit up in the air. You know, the parties will submit their sort of thoughts to the court. But the judge has asked the Trump lawyers on Monday to respond to DOJ's motion for a partial stay. And I think in that, she has um, sort of invited them to agree with this view that the classified material should be exempted. Um I can't imagine the former president agreeing with anything, but, you know, if by some strange trick of fate he does, or if what's more likely the court exempts the classified materials, then this special master job and the review looks pretty different, and it's going to be a lot more easier, I think, to find someone 
if the classified material remains in place, um, then they've they've got a much more difficult job, and it seems likely to me it would go to uh, probably a former judge, a former head of the National Security Division or the Criminal Division, somebody like that. Well, we will keep monitoring this uh, to bring you the latest. It's really quite remarkable indeed, and there's a lot to come ahead. So, Barb, you've got a fabulous review in the Washington Post today on a new book that's come out. The book was written by Jeffrey Berman, who was Trump's United States attorney in the Southern District of New York. Um, Tell us a little bit about your review and why Mr. Berman has written a book and what's interesting for our listeners in this situation. Yeah, his book's called Holding the Line. And, you know, it, it really is about um, his efforts to protect the integrity of the Southern District of New York during the Trump administration. And man, he tells tales and he names names, which I found really interesting. You know, he tells the part that I like the best is uh, the story of his firing, which, you know, we knew a little bit about before, but he reveals some new details. And it was even more sordid, you know, than than you thought when it happened. Um and he, he tells a good story. You know, he's a trial lawyer and trial lawyers tell good stories. Uh, and he talks about, you know, being summoned to the Pierre Hotel and he calls it a swanky place where even standard rooms can cost a thousand bucks a night or more. Joyce, in light of our, our experience at DOJ when we couldn't even like serve coffee or a muffin at an, at an event without reaching <laughs> into our pocket, you believe he's staying at the Pierre Hotel in New York? What do you think? A thousand bucks a night. You know, God. it's unbelievable. I mean, I remember at one point just telling my husband, do not look at the charge just for donuts on my credit card. If yeah. I have people yeah. in my office, yeah. I buy all the Me donuts. Too. And I would spend like 400 bucks oh, a month yeah. on donuts oh, yeah. and coffee. Yeah, yeah, Easy. all the time. Yeah, yeah. no, I yeah. know. I'm sorry you raised this. Now I'm going to be steaming all <laughs> Stirred up a, a hornet's nest. Um, but it's it's really interesting. And, you know, the, the theme of the book is very much about how people at the highest levels of the Justice Department, in, including names that, you know, have come up during the January 6th hearing, like Jeffrey Rosen, who, you know, stood tall against Trump, but not so tall in the midst of it, or um, uh, Ed O'Callaghan, who was top deputy to Rod Rosenstein, you know, things like uh, saying you need to charge this guy who's a, a um uh, a Democrat, because it's time for you guys to even things out after they charged Michael Cohen, who was, of course, Trump's lawyer and a member of Congress who was a Republican. Like, what are you talking about? Even things out. They wanted him to charge John Kerry for violating the Logan Act. And, you know, Barb, they said, isn't that no. how you did it? Didn't you charge yeah. <laughs> one Democrat for every Republican you charged? Oh, my God. No. It's awful. I mean, there are really dozens and dozens of stories. I highlighted a couple of them in the uh, mm. in the review. But um it's uh, you know, it's it's really chilling stuff, and it's it's really disgusting stuff. I'm both proud of him for holding the line, and a little annoyed with him for not revealing any of this earlier. Yeah, um, you know, you know my assessment, right? None of these guys are heroes. But Kim, you flagged this book, and in our conversation ahead of the show, you identified. I, I thought you had a smart insight. You talked about this tension between a former government's obligation to protect confidential information. Um, and the public's right to know. And usually when I look at books like this, I just have a certain amount of distaste that they're making money off of something like this. Yeah. But you sort of reframed that a little bit for me. Where, where do you come down on that in regards to Berman's book? 
Yeah. So just my initial thought is exactly, I started exactly where you were, which is I have a really big problem with public officials who wait until after they've left office, sometimes years after they, they've left office, to reveal things that are really important for the public to know because they involve um, the administration of justice or protection of democracy or other really important goals. And they wait to reveal this until the point that they can make some money off of it, off of a book. I find that really repugnant. But at the same time, in this case, I wasn't sure, and that's why I, I was chatting with you two before this, is I think things are different when it's a U.S. attorney. I feel like with both of you, part of the integrity of U.S. attorneys is that you are very circumspect about the way you talk about that job, the importance of that job. And perhaps there were, if not hard and fast rules, principles at least that govern the fact that perhaps in releasing this book, Berman maybe felt that it was so important to talk about what he did that whereas most U.S. attorneys would not be as candid about what happened inside, he felt a need to do that. And so I was willing to leave some space open to give him that grace. And certainly after reading Barb's review of his book, um, I am even more willing to give him a little grace for that space, but I'm still a little annoyed that he waited until now instead of he was fired. I mean, he could have immediately after he was fired, he could have publicly disclosed all of this, but he saved it for the books. I I, I want both of your takes about whether that was the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go a step further and say he should have resigned in Mm. protest and Mm. talked about why. Um, I think some of this stuff is unconscionable, and frankly, Barb and I have never had to grapple with this because Eric Holder never called us up and said, hey, do you think you could prosecute a, a you know Republican? And by the way, can you let some of Barack Obama's friends go free? I right. mean, A, those situations just didn't happen, and B, the notion that Holder would have made a phone call like that is just utterly laughable. That is not how the Justice Department operated um, during the Obama administration, and it's clearly how it did during the Trump administration. And this is where our need to both sides everything really is dangerous. I think we need to acknowledge that something uniquely bad happened during the Trump administration at DOJ and in other parts of government, and people who should have come forward, people who should have stood up for the truth, didn't do it. You know, whether that's because they had the plan all along to make a book or whether the book is just gratuitous now that they're they're out of government, um, I don't know and can't speak to. But people need to take their oaths seriously um, if they're going to take them at all. And we were taught as young prosecutors that you had to know where the lines were and be willing to say no. And Jeffrey Berman didn't. Yeah, I I agree with that, too. And I think I distinguish that. I I hear a lot of people criticizing, for example, journalists who release books and release tidbits that they didn't report in real time. And to me, you may not think that that was the best way to go. You may personally believe they should have reported that in real time. But the difference between journalists doing this and public officials is just what you said, Joyce. They take an oath to uphold the Constitution in a way that I think should be above everything else. Journalists, don't we don't take an oath to uphold the Constitution. If it were me, just my gut, if I found out information, I would report it as soon as I could. Of course. That's just what I do. But I don't I don't 
I don't cast dispersions on other journalists who want to feed their families either. But in, but again, we are not public officials. Um, and so I think that there is a line there. But 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 Barbara, I just, you know, again, I said after reading after reading your review, these are important things. And what do you think about waiting till now to disclose them? Yeah, I, I disagree with it. But, you know, this idea about Joyce said he should have resigned and I, I get that and I understand that. But, you know, I think when you're living in it, it appears that what Jeffrey Berman thought is I need to stay so that I can protect yeah. the integrity of the office. And he did push back, you know, when they they demanded that he said, remember that um, when when uh, uh, Cy Vance in the Manhattan DA's office wanted um, Trump's tax records and had subpoenaed them. DOJ filed a motion that said something like, it's illegal to even investigate a sitting president. And they wanted Berman to sign it and he refused. Um, and they really pushed him according to the book and he refused. And he stood you know, pretty strong and he probably risked getting fired, but he did it because he thought it was so important to protect the integrity of the office. So he did push back while he was there. And I think I can imagine feeling like, well, if I resign, then it's just going to fall on the next person or he's going to install some loyalist here who will go along and then we're all worse off. I think that is a, a an issue that people struggle with in administration, which is perhaps why when someone like Donald Trump um, invites you to join his administration, maybe there's a good reason to say no. But are we better off with people who do hold the line and are inside the administration as opposed to yeah. having a bunch of Trump yes men in there? But I do agree with the point that if you're going to tell the story, tell it right away. He testified before Congress and told some of this, but he didn't tell all of it. And yeah. I think it would have been... Um, uh, important to share these stories immediately and not wait until you can put it in a nice book that you can sell. And especially with congressional. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Barb, because he, when he testified in Congress, he kept saying, I'm not going to answer that. It's outside of the scope of the interview. Yeah, And, and you know, uh, this is somebody who, if in the moment he had resigned and said, uh, you know, I am being heavily pressured to let go of a six-month-old um, plea deal with Michael Cohen, who's clearly guilty, that might have headed off some of what came after it. It might have headed off uh, everything that happened with Roger Stone and everything that happened with Mike Flynn if the public had been more aware. But like you say, I think it's tough in the moment. What happened in the Trump administration was um, really unprecedented, even though we don't use that word on this podcast. And hopefully it becomes a cautionary tale for um any future sort of shenanigans like this, although hopefully there won't be any. Yeah. And just on that final point, it's hard. It's hard when you're, I, I recognize when you're in the position, it's hard to make that choice, whether to disclose in real time. Not everybody can pull the sort of hat trick that Miles Taylor, the the uh, former DHS staffer, where he was anonymous. Remember anonymous? Oh, yeah. yeah was later, later, he came out and revealed yeah. himself. He sort of found a way to sort of toe that line to still, he believed that staying within, like you said, working from the inside. Um, and trying to prevent the rails from coming off was the right way to go. But at the same time, he sort of dropped a dime anonymously <laughs> in a way that caused a lot of journalistic questions. But in retrospect, it's like, huh, that was actually fairly brilliant. Pretty good. Steve Bannon, the former White House advisor to former President Donald Trump, has been charged by the Manhattan District Attorney relating to a fund called 
we build the wall. Kim, can you tell us what Bannon has been charged with and why does this all sound so eerily familiar to me? It does sound familiar, doesn't it, Barb? So the We Build the Wall campaign, if you recall, was an effort led by Bannon that sought uh, donations for people for actually building the wall that Donald Trump promised that Mexico would pay for. And of course, a lot of people who really were in support of building the wall gave money. And this money did not, shockingly, did not, in fact, go toward building a wall. What? It didn't go? (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's so hard to believe. And so for that, Bannon Uh, was charged uh, on charges including money laundering, conspiracy, and fraud, because that is highly illegal. And if it seems familiar, Barb, it's because he faced similar federal charges uh, for the very same scheme and the very same, very uh, closely related charges. But Donald Trump, in one of his final acts as president, pardoned Steve, Steve Bannon, so he could not face federal charges for that. But as we know, and we've discussed before, a president cannot pardon uh, in, in, against state charges, and that's what Steve Bannon is facing now. Yeah, so that's an interesting plot twist. So Joyce, when I hear about a subsequent prosecution, uh, I start thinking about the term double jeopardy. Um, Is there any double jeopardy problem with charging Bannon, you know, after he was already charged in federal court, got a pardon? And I kind of recall that they tried to do this with Paul Manafort and that it fell apart, that it got dismissed for double jeopardy. That was New York. This is New York. How is this case different? Yeah, so it's a really good question, and double jeopardy is um, one of those issues that often comes up when a state prosecutes after the federal government prosecutes or the federal government prosecutes after the state. And so here's your black letter double jeopardy law for the day. It's called separate sovereigns, and double jeopardy only means that the same sovereign, in other words, the federal government or a state, can only prosecute you once for conduct. Acquit, convict, they don't get a second bite at the apple. And so here, because we have a federal prosecution followed by a state prosecution, there's no problem with double jeopardy. But New York has slightly different laws than most states do, and they essentially have adopted a rule that's very restrictive and says that state prosecutors should not engage in a prosecution following the federal government or another state. The reason, though, that that doesn't matter in this case, and it's sort of a nice little bit of karma that follows um, after the pardon, is that because there was not a trial where a jury was selected and sworn in, which is the point at which double jeopardy attaches is when jurors take their oath and are sworn in to serve as a jury. And Bannon never got that far. His pardon actually came very early. They were still months out from trial, just very early stages of the proceedings. And so there's no double jeopardy bar here. Sorry, Steve. He'll have to face (laughs) trial in Manhattan if he doesn't plead guilty. Yeah. So, Kim, what do you think? Are there other people out there who are pardoned by Trump who might be concerned <sighs> that they, too, could face charges? Um, is every, you know, part, on the way out the door, he pardoned a whole bunch of people like Charles Kushner and Michael Milken and people like that. Yeah. Um, would uh, are, Can all of those people now be charged? Listen, I think that it is clear that they should hire good attorneys and let them know what their criminal liability might be, despite 
these pardons for the reasons that we said. They don't apply to state law. And as Joyce very well uh, set out, it would not be a double jeopardy problem in many of these cases because often, very, very often the state laws that apply to some of this alleged wrongdoing are not completely identical to the federal law. So just because you were pardoned for the federal crime does that does not mean that being charged on the state level would amount to a double jeopardy uh, problem. Now, there could be other obstacles in the way. Every state sets their own, for example, statute of limitations, which means if a certain amount of time has passed, you cannot be charged with this crime. So as more and more time passes, the risk of that can lessen. Uh, But yeah, we've already known that not only for some of the people that Trump pardoned, but for Trump himself, um, that state charges could always be possible for wrongdoing they could have committed. So all of these people should have good attorneys and they should be well aware of their criminal liability. Yeah. Did you guys see the video that's been circulating on Twitter of, I guess you would call it a perp walk where Bannon is being walked along in handcuffs, you know, down yeah. a corridor. What was your reaction to that? I don't like perp walks in general. Yeah, I, I so don't know. Really, what in the media, you don't love serve. it. I was that media. No, actually, that. I don't. And because I, I want, it's it's in my it. interest that the media acts in a responsible yeah. way, right? Mm-hmm. In so many ways, perp walks are used in ways that can ruin people's lives, and I can't have a double standard mm-hmm. for someone like Steve Bannon yep. uh, to the person who may have innocently or wrongly been charged and have their lives uh, really upended um, from that process. One thing I'm really proud of that my news organization, the Boston Globe, has done is that there is a process by which somebody who was named in stories even, this is not even charges, but named in stories in a way in the past that could follow them through life can say, hey, you know what? The Here is the evidence to show that this was really unjust and have that scrubbed from our, our, our archives. I think that's wow. really important. And so in the same way, I have a real trouble with perk perp walks in general, and I keep it consistent. And I just think that that was unnecessary. We can all know exactly what Steve Bannon did and what kind of person he is without that. Totally agree with that. You know, people are innocent until they're proven guilty in this country. And the perp walk just has such a veneer of guilt that goes along with it. I think it's unfair. I think there's even potential jury prejudice involved in extreme cases. I know it's more common uh, with state prosecutors than with federal prosecutors. In my district, had we done that, I think our judges would have come down really hard on us. But that's not the ethic every place. So like you say, Kim, it's, it's up to folks who believe that this is wrong to make sure it doesn't happen and even go further to protect people. Because, I, I mean, we're serious in this country. We are a rule of law country. People are innocent until proven guilty and the burden of proof uh, of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt always stays with the government. Yeah, I can remember, Joyce, we got media training. And one of the things we were told is no perp walks and you never show the evidence because it could taint a potential jury. Uh, The person, as you said, is presumed innocent, no matter how despicable they may be. And um, in fact, I can remember an occasion where there was a case when I was U.S. attorney 
and uh, an agency arrested somebody. And I saw a perp walk on the TV news. It was brought to my attention, you know, by the lawyers on the case who were concerned that the judge is going to give me a really hard time about this, understandably so. And so yeah. I, I I called the head of that agency and asked him to come into my office and I read him the riot act. This this will not happen yeah. again or we will not bring the case. It's, yeah. uh, it's unacceptable. So I know people, you know, because they don't like Steve Bannon and there's a lot to not like about him, um, you know, will uh, laugh at his misfortune, but it's it's not good for, as you say, Joyce, a country that adheres to the rule of law. Well, y'all, it has been a week of legal news, and it's almost impossible to get to everything. So we're fortunate this week to have questions that will help us touch on some of the other issues that I know have been foremost in everybody's minds. We love answering your questions. We really do look forward to this part every week. So please, if you have questions for us, email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com. If you have questions for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com. Or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. We'll go through your questions and pull out the ones that are the most frequently asked. And if we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week, where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can get to. Our first question this week comes from SMACCA2561. And the question is an interesting one. How is Ted Cruz able to run for president or how was Ted Cruz able to run for president in 2016 when he was born in Canada? Considering the birtherism about Obama and the attempt to do the same thing with Harris, Kim, do you have an answer for us? Why did Ted Cruz get to run? Yeah, so I do have an answer. So just to start that the um, claims about Obama and Harris were absolute nonsense and they are U.S. citizens. They are natural born citizens. And that was silly. So I will just dismiss that at the front. But um, yes, people think about natural born citizens and think, which is a requirement to be able to run for president. I think it's that, that you're 35 years old or older and that you win the Electoral College. Those are the three qualifications to become president. And with respect to natural born citizens, people who are born to U.S. citizens while abroad are still considered natural born citizens. And that is the case with Ted Cruz. He was absolutely qualified under that to run for president. The same, I think the closest question, but I think it also applied to him too, that we have seen in recent times was um, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, who ran for president. And he was born in Mexico because his family was in exile because they were uh, members of the Mormon church who had been ousted from Utah. And so he was born in Mexico, but he too was born to two U.S. citizens. And I believe that Ultimately, the the determination would have been that he was qualified as well. He um, dropped out before it reached that point. But uh, people who are born to U.S. citizens abroad are still U.S. citizens. So our second question comes from D. Barnett 302. And they ask, can Judge Cannon be referred to the ABA for review given a legally dubious ruling impacting issues of national security? And it's an interesting question because it's really asking what mechanisms are in place to 
uh, keep judges consistent with their oaths. And so the ABA here actually wouldn't have much of a role to play. Typically, though, when federal judges are nominated in most administrations, um, the president will actually send a portfolio over to the American Bar Association and ask them to return a recommendation for the judge. So that's something that happens while the judge is going through the confirmation process. When you're talking about a judge who's confirmed and on the bench, Really, the, the appropriate mechanism for some form of an ethics referral or a referral for misconduct is to the Judicial Inquiry Committee in that circuit. That's usually the folks that handle it. It's judges who police other judges. And in my experience, they can be quite good at doing that in cases of misconduct or ethics. But here the question is about what can we do about a judge whose ruling we disagree with? And the reality is that we don't really sanction or discipline judges for rulings that we don't agree with. To the extent that there's a discipline mechanism, it's through the appellate procedure where higher courts are able to reverse lower courts if they believe they got the issues wrong. In very extreme cases, for instance, where a judge engaged in criminal behavior, there could even be impeachment proceedings. That happens very rarely. But that's about crime or ethics. And here we're talking about an opinion we disagree with. Our last question is for Barb, and it comes from Robert McDevitt Four. Robert asks, who are the people that sign off on SCIF documents? Do they have any accountability for documents not being returned? Are there checks and balances? Barb, I think it's actually a, a really well-timed question because what are SCIFs? How do they work? You've got a lot of national security background. Can you help people better understand what this looks like? Yeah, it's an excellent question because, you know, one really has to wonder how on earth could all these documents end up in Trump's basement at Mar-a-Lago? Um, so a SCIF, uh, it's an acronym that stands for Sensitive compartmented information facility, and it's essentially a room that is a safe. Um, uh, we had one at my former U.S. Attorney's Office. The FBI had an entire floor that was a skiff. I know at DOJ, the National Security Division is in a, a floor that is, uh, the entire place is a skiff. You can't bring a cell phone inside, no electronic devices that could be intercepted or that could be used to make an image of anything. And, you know, in there, that's where documents are stored. There are also classified computers that some at the secret level, some at the top secret level, where you can access um, certain classified documents that are on the server. But yes, there is accountability. So every SCIF has an assigned security officer, and it is that person's responsibility to keep an inventory of every document that is in that SCIF. And so if anything should leave and not be there, uh, that would be problematic, and there is a way to track it. You have to sort of, you know, uh, indicate that you're the per last person who had it, when you had it, you know, and, and sign a, uh, a log. Um, and there are checks and balances on it. It is subject to inspection. The CIA actually inspects and approves all of the skiffs. So they have to accredit them. They have to ensure that the walls are of appropriate thickness, that the floor is uh, appropriately uh, reinforced. And part of that is so that listening devices can't be uh, stuck within the walls or any other things that could compromise information. And so it really does beg the question how Trump was able to get away with all these documents. But it does indicate how it was that the National Archives new documents were missing. I imagine they went to their inventory and said, hey, has anybody seen the 
document that talks about nuclear capabilities for country X? Huh, that seems to be missing. Let's look at the <laughs> log. Gee, last time we saw that was in the Oval Office back in ah. 2019. So uh, that is how these things get traced and likely how it was, at least in part, that the, that, uh, the National Archives and then the Justice Department knew that these documents were still in Trump's possession. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Jill can tell us all about her adventures next week when she returns. Do you think you she wore one in- of those fastener things at the wedding? You know yes. what I'm talking about? Those like fancy hats, big hats. everything on together? Oh, a fascinator. Yeah. Fascinator. Yeah, that's what they call them, those fancy hats, you think? Yeah, or, or just their, like, or one of the really big ones, I think she wore. I don't know, but we need to get pictures out of her before next week. We'll definitely have that for next week. And you out there can send in your questions for Jill or for Kim, Barb, and me by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, the hoodie now that it's getting cooler, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, Framebridge, HelloFresh, Helix, and Noom. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. We love them, and they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag SistersInLaw. You know, I love that you have your hydrant bottle. Every time I'm together with my neighbors and somebody needs something, they'll be saying, oh, you know, I really need like a new product that'll get the stains off of my kitchen counter. And no, they look at me and they say, do you guys have something like that on the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) We all know the good one.